we are uh, looking at the Word of God, and I, I want to open this morning by looking at this passage, this scripture. I'm really just going to work through about eight verses this morning, uh, and I just want to open up a, a, a couple of about a month ago, I got up one morning and, uh, you know, sat down and had my cup of tea. Uh, I'm an English breakfast kind of guy, all right, all right. And uh, any English pe- breakfast people in the room? All right, come on, i got friends out there. Sometimes not being a coffee drinker, you feel really isolated in Auckland. You feel alone. And uh, I, I, feel, I feel like i got friends now here. I feel like I can belong in this church. Uh, but I got up one morning and uh, was, was opening up my scripture. And, you know, every time, every now and again, you read scripture and you're like, man, that's incredible. It speaks right to my situation. And uh, I got up and I read this scripture. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't have that moment. Uh, I read the scripture and it just said this. It's pretty straightforward. It's nothing out of the ordinary, but it says this. It's, it's, it's Moses writing to the people. It's in the book of De- Deuteronomy, verse, uh, chapter 20. At verse 1, he opens by saying this, When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. And I got, I got up in the morning, I read that scripture, and I was like, that's a really easy thing to say, Moses. Like, it's a really easy statement to say, hey, when you, when you go out to battle and they're stronger than you, they're better than you, there's more of them, they have horses, you have pitchforks, they have chariots, right? you have your shovels, that's all the Israelites kind of had at the, in the time. And he goes, when you go against them, don't be afraid. I'm like, yeah, easy to say, easy to say. And who, who knows, sometimes it's easy to read Scripture and go, yeah, well, that, that's good. Trust the Lord. Yeah, that's a good thought. But I've got some real problems going on. I've got real situations going on. And Moses isn't actually speaking hypothetically. He's actually speaking directly to the people who are about to face armies, who are about to come. And he says, hey, you don't need to be afraid. But you ever, you ever found those moments in life where you're like, you know, like your life, you, you engage in an activity that's potentially life-threatening, you know, like bungee jumping or jumping off a cliff or doing something stupid in your journey, and, and you go to do it, and you always got that friend on the side like, come on, man, it'll be all right, you do it, it's going to be great, you'll be fine. And uh, I was hosting uh, someone in, in, in Topor a couple of years ago, they weren't from New Zealand, uh, but they'd heard about the bungee jump, and they're like, oh, I'd really love to do the bungee jump, and I'm like, cool, we'll take you to to jump, and so if you haven't been to, to Topor and seen the, the bungee, it's quite high, right? And <laughs> and uh, he, 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 it's kind of he'd seen it on YouTube, but never seen it in reality. And we're watching people just jumping off this cliff and bouncing back. And I'm standing there like, "Come on, man! It's gonna be awesome. You'll be great." And he's like, "I'm a bit nervous." I'm like, "Nah, don't be scared. You'll be fine." And then I, I get the courage, and we're standing at the counter, and I'm like, come on, man, it's going to be awesome, just do it. And he turns to me, and he's like, yeah, but why don't you do it with me? I'm like, you know, this is really about you. This whole time's all about you. <laughs> and the advice changed when it was about me. You know, like, when it comes to your world, I've got some good advice for you. When it comes to the battles you're fighting, I've got some good advice. Come on, don't be afraid. But when it you know... When it comes to me, who knows often the advice changes when it's about me. 
The vice, you know, when I first went flatting, we had this great idea that one of our flatmates should shave his head completely bald and just leave a tuft of hair at the back. We were like, that would be awesome. Great advice for him. Then he turns to me and he goes, but will you do it with me? Yeah, no, nah, that's stupid. You know, as I, so often we, 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 like to, we like to give advice to others. Moses is saying, hey, when the armies come against you, don't be afraid. But the question is not just the advice we're giving to others. What's the advice you're giving to yourself? Come on, this isn't just a commandment for others. It's a commandment even for Moses. Hey, hey, I know we're facing some stuff, but we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. You know, it's Olympic season. I love the Olympics. I quickly become an expert about sports I know nothing about prior to the week before. And uh, post-shout, it was actually uh, the day after shout, the Olympics had started, and uh, I'm sitting on the couch with an ice cream. It's just my shout debrief. And uh, just taking in what God has done. And uh, I'm looking at, at the screen and watching the Olympic sports happen. And, and then all of a sudden, kayaking comes on, down like white water kayaking, something I've never done in my life. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm quite confused about how it all works. There's green gates and there's red gates. And I find out, listening to the commentary, how the sport works. They're giving a bit of it. And then you got to go down the green gates and turn around and come up the red gates. And if you hit the gates, there's penalties. If you miss a gate, there's penalties. But if your boat gets a bit caught in the white water, it's hard to get back up through the red gates. And at first, I'm just watching these people. And then about five minutes into it, I'm watching them. People have trained their whole life for this moment. I'm like, ah, oh, you went too deep in the white water. You know, I'm sitting here all of five minutes of research, listening to a commentary, eating an ice cream. Someone's given their life to the sport, and here I am on the couch saying, come on, just, oh, you're doing it all wrong. You know, because we become great commentators. Oh, man, we're good at commentating. Like we are, like especially in Christianity, let's be honest. We're great at giving a commentary on what the world should be like. We're great at giving a commentary on how things should be. But the call of God on us is not to be commentators. Go into the world and give a commentary on what they should be doing. The call of God is not to commentate. It's to engage. It's to engage. You know, I I grew up uh, like playing playing rugby my, my whole childhood right right through school and um and it hurt a lot and uh <laughs> but the social pressure kept me going uh but the thing that always got me is we'd have these coaches like because of where I grew up man I had like the classic Kiwi coaches like, especially in our younger years we'd always have these coaches that would turn up the practice with their red bands on stubbies a shirt that's a bit too small for them their gut kind of hanging out. And sometimes, you know, where I grew up, there'd be the white cattle in the hand. <laughs> this is my child. And they'll be trying to give us a spiel on how important fitness is in the game. <laughs> like, oh, all right, boys, last week you got too tired. You haven't been running enough. And we're all standing there like, come on, man. Like, seriously. Because at the end of the day, it's so much easier just to give a commentary. It's so much easier just to say, oh, man, yeah, the church should do this. Or, oh, yeah, it would be great if we did that. Or even just give a commentary on the world. But I'm so thankful we're not a church that's just giving a commentary. 
But we're a church that's willing to engage. We're a people that's actually willing to, to engage. You know, the, 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 we find this, parab- uh, the, this parable in Scripture that we're all familiar with, the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan isn't so much an answering of question as much as it is a call to engage. How the Good Samaritan comes about the story is a teacher of the law shows up to Jesus one day and he says this, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns to the teacher of the law and he says, you know the law, what do you reckon? And he responds with, well, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. God's like, you already know what to do. Like you're asking me questions, you know answers too. The problem isn't that the, 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 you don't know what to do. The problem is doing what you know what to do. Because then he wants to justify himself because now he looks like an idiot. And he goes, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Jesus gives the parable that we're all familiar with, the priest, the Levite, walk past the guy who's been beaten up, ignore him. A Samaritan walks past the person, takes him up, puts him in, in returns, makes sure he's looked after, nurse back to health. And then he asks, asks the man, well, who do you think the neighbor is? The man's like, yeah, I guess it's the Samaritan. He, he, he knew the answer. Like he knew the story. He knew the answer the whole. The challenge in that story is then when Jesus in verse 37 turns to him, because the expert of the Lord replied, the one who has mercy on him, Jesus then responds and says, now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The challenge wasn't discovering who my neighbor is. The challenge is in loving who my neighbor is. And actually loving. He knew already. And the question he really didn't need to ask was, who was my neighbor? The question he really needed to ask is, Jesus, can you help me? I'm struggling to love my neighbor. I'm struggling to actually engage with what Scripture's saying. And there's this moment in life when often for us, the challenge probably isn't for many of us in this room is knowing what to do. But it's actually having the confidence to engage with what we know what to do. At, uh, at Shout, we, we run this, um, this little leadership session for uh, Year 12 and 13s. We call it the front line. Um, it's, it's this youth leadership development kind of space. And uh, me, uh, Nathaniel, I'm not going down alone, mate. I'm bringing you in this with me. Me, Nathaniel, this guy over here, uh, Bola and uh, Genesee, uh, have this great idea uh, that what we'll do is we'll split them all into groups and we'll all give them scenarios like, like tough real-life youth leadership scenarios. And then they'll sit in groups and then they'll give us their answers on how they would handle those scenarios. But because we are awesome and been doing this a while, we'll be up here and we'll be a group and we'll give our answers because their answers are going to be wrong. All right, this is our our idea heading in and we need to teach these guys. So we're giving out like real life scenarios. What do I do when me and two of my other mates crush on a youth leader? You know, how do we navigate that situation? And we're asking them these questions and we're all sitting up here with a microphone ready to answer questions. And, 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 and the, the front line is the year 12 and 13 start giving us answers back. And we're like, oh, I didn't think of that. That's quite good. <laughs> we go the whole hour without giving any advice. In fact, we're like sitting there like, oh, I better remember that. And because, <laughs> because we're sitting there, and at the end of it, it dawns on me that the challenge here isn't knowing. 
The problem for the church probably isn't even knowing how to engage or knowing how to love our society or knowing what our families need or knowing what it needs of us or knowing how to serve or, or knowing how to pray or knowing how to step out in faith. Or the problem for many of us isn't in the knowing. It's in the confidence to engage with what we know, to actually engage with what we know. And so he opens this passage, this call to war. It's actually Moses' call to war. And he opens this call to war. But in this call to war is what I want to look at this morning. There's just two things Moses addresses. Because the call was to come and engage in a fight. But then he addresses two pretty key things. He's addressing two things that are going to either rob or distract people from actually engaging in the war. And the first one of the two major themes is this. The first one is he speaks to the worry of the heart. He speaks to the nervousness. He speaks to the doubt. We find this in verse 1. I want to read this through. Verse 1 to verse 4. If you read this, this is the opening of the call to war. He says, when we come up against our enemies and see their horses and chariots and army greater than yours. Do not be afraid of them, because the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, here is Israel. Today you are going to go and battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified of them. For the Lord your God is one who goes with you to fight for you and against the enemies to bring you victory. There's this moment, the first kind of instant in the Scripture, the first thing that the Moses is trying to get to, there's, there's two things. The first one is this. He speaks to the worry, the doubt, and the stress of a heart. And he says, hey, if you're actually going to engage... If we're actually going to engage in this battle, if we're going to engage in this purpose, if we're going to engage with this mission, the first thing you need to realize and settle is actually the thing that's going to try and distract you and worry you is the worry of your heart. Like we get a, we get a, we get a, we get a vision at shout, and it's already been seven days. And throughout the seven days, some of the worry and nervousness of stepping out on what God told me to do has already diminished the call that God gave me. I think you should go and do this. Monday morning, yeah, I'm going to do that. Monday afternoon, oh, yeah, that's right. I've got to pay the mortgage. You know, like, like the worry, how, how am I going to pay the mortgage? Like the worry of life distracts the heart from what God's calling them to. But what he, the big thing here is that he doesn't just say, hey, don't worry. He, he does say that. But he says, hey, what you actually need to do is ground your worry, ground your stress, ground your nervousness, ground your doubt in some truths about God. It's like when he calls us to, to not worry about anything, but pray about everything. It doesn't mean if you worry you're a bad Christian, you fail the test, better luck next year. You know, it, it's, it's not how it's going to say, hey, when you worry, turn to prayer. Turn to prayer. And, the, and, the, and what happens is you've got to learn how to ground your worry, ground your doubts, ground the things you have going on, the questions you have back in something. 
And there's four things Moses actually directs the people. Hey, I know you might be scared. Those chariots aren't hypothetical. They're real people that really want to kill you. But don't worry. There's four aspects of God we need to hold on to in our worry. There's four aspects of God we need to believe in in our doubt. And the four aspects we hear them. First, he says what God has done. Remember what God has done in delivering you from Egypt. The first thing you need to ground yourself in is remembering yourself the good things that God has done. What God has done in your life. The faithfulness into this moment. How good God has been. I know there's a challenge ahead of you, but remember how good God has been so far. Let that bring confidence to your world. Because there's times when the Israelites remembered not the good things God has done, but the terrible things they thought God had done. Like there's times in the journey of the wilderness when they'd stop and they'd reflect and they'd say, man, Egypt had awesome leeks and awesome onions and awesome turnips. Why did you bring us out here, God? Well, they've got a distorted view on what God has actually done. The leeks weren't that good. I mean, the soup was all right, but it wasn't that good. It wasn't worth what you went through. And, and he's encouraging the people, hey, remember the good things God has done up until this point. I know there's some challenges, and I know you've been through some challenges, but remember the hand of God on it all. Remember, ground it in the reality of what God has done. The first is grounded in what God has done. Ground it in a belief that God is with you. And then ground it in a belief that God fights for you. And then ground it in a belief also that God will bring the victory. I would say when it comes to pursuing the things of God for us as a church, for you as an individual, for the call of God, when there's worry in your world, when there's doubt in your world, when you're facing some things, there's four things you've got to ground your faith back in. That God has been good. That God is with you. That God does fight for you. And that God will bring victory. And I've come to realize in my life, I get more full of doubt and more full of nerves when I actually have a distorted view of one of these four things. Like, yeah, I know God's been good, but do I really believe God is still with me? There's times when the Israelites were okay to look back and go, yeah, God has been good, but there was worries in their heart about whether God was going to continue to be good. Actually, it's easy to believe in a situational God than a continuous God. Like, God, I believe you can come through in this situation. But there comes a time where you don't just got to believe God to deliver you in situations, but a God that journeys with you. In fact, even the, uh, the word miracle, God can come and do a miracle. To the early church and the Jewish community, that would be a, a weird thing to believe for. Because their belief wasn't that God would come out of heaven and intervene in a moment. Their belief was that God is always with you. And at moments, you'll see fruit of it. So I'm not calling God to come into my situation. There's a belief that God's been and is in my situation. And at times I'm going to see the manifestation of that through signs and wonders. Miracles was invented by the church later on. That this idea that a God would come out of heaven and help you. No, God's not going to come out of heaven and help you. Why? Because God's already here. He's already in what you're going through. He's already in it. He says, hey, ground your belief that God is with you, that God fights for you, and that God will bring victory. 
The God will bring victory. And I know there's been areas in my life where it's easy to believe God will bring victory here, but a little harder that God will bring victory here. So I've seen God move here, but I've never seen God move in this way. But it's that belief in all things God can bring victory. So the first thing he speaks to is the warrior of the heart, and he says, hey, you need to ground these things. Ground it in the truth of who God is. And then the second part of the call to war is this. What he speaks to is actually the distraction of the heart. He says, hey, first worry is going to try and shrink you, but then there's things that are going to distract you. And he speaks to them saying this. It says, the offerer, the officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet began to live in it? Let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Then he goes in verse 6, has anyone planted a vineyard and not began to enjoy it? Let him go home because he might die in the battle and someone else might enjoy it. Verse 7, he says, hey, has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her yet? Let him go home or in battle he might die and someone else might marry her. He speaks to three things and says, hey, hey, these three things are going to distract you in war. So it's better you go home and deal with them. He goes, hey, if you're, bought, if you're building a house, if you kind of got your career underway and, and you're starting a relationship, you probably, you, hey, you know what? You got you to get out of jail free card on this one. You can go home and enjoy it. It's a weird kind of picture that God's calling the army and says, hey, but if you've got a house, you've got a career, and you've got a family, you know what? Don't, don't bother yourself with this. Let's leave this up to the single ones that haven't really got a job yet and are still living at home. That's who you need to be doing the work of the Lord because I've got a house and I've got a career and I've got a family. And, and it's sad in the reality, often so many people get caught up by these things. That it's not a, it's not a negativity. In fact, this call to war, actually the, the writer would say, or commentaries would say, it's one of the most gracious calls to war that there would have been for the time. It actually reveals the grace of God. Because he's not saying, hey, I don't care what's going on in your world. I don't care how you're feeling. I need you to surrender yourself so we can go and fight. Because that's generally how most calls to war happened. The commander would come out and say, hey, you need to leave everything. I don't really care what's going on in your world. Let's just go and fight. But the call to the people of God is, hey, if you're worried, take a moment. And, and ground yourself in God. But then also... If your heart's caught up in these things, they're going to be a distraction on the battlefield. And it's better you go home and resolve where these things sit in your heart. The call wasn't to go home and stay home. It was like he said, if we have the keys just as we finish up. Like he says this when he calls to the building, about the building. He says this. He says, when you go home, for those who have built a house and not yet began to live in it, let him go home, or he may die in battle. What he, what's really going on here? When he's talking about and not yet lived in it, what they're actually talking about is they're not yet dedicated it. There was a, 
there was a, 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 a ritual that would take place or a ceremony that would take place. When one of the Jewish people would build a house, they would move in. And then they'd come to this moment where they'd actually invite the neighborhood around. But a big part of this, this gathering, it wasn't just a housewarming to have your mates over. They'd come to this point where there was a decision and a moment of prayer without the person would say, God, with all I have, I now dedicate this to you. And they dedicate their house to God. And why he's saying, hey, if, if you've built a house, but you haven't come to a point where you've surrendered it to God, it's going to distract you in the battle. That, that, that these material things that you got hold of have, have the ability to distract you in the battle that God has for you. And maybe it's better you go home and come to a point of surrender because every other commander, willing or unwilling, would send you. But God doesn't say, I want you willing or unwilling. He says, I want you willing. God doesn't want you to enlist in the purpose of God for your life, but to be resentful about what you didn't get to do. He would rather release you and say, hey, there's going to come a point where you realize these things aren't going to satisfy you. They're not going to fill what you thought it was going to fill. And then in that moment, I need you to take all the stuff you have and have a moment where you say, God, with all I have, I dedicate it to you. I dedicate it to you. The vineyard, he says, hey, if you planted a vineyard but not yet enjoyed it, what that was was in the law of Jewish people for three years, once you planted a vineyard, you weren't allowed to eat of the grapes of it. He's saying, hey, I, I, I know there's this, this, this pursuit that God, you're calling me to, but also this ambition that I have over here becomes a distraction to the pursuit you have for me over here. And God doesn't say, hey, just ignore that. Go away from that. He says, hey, why don't we resolve this? And again, it was the same thing. Send them home so they could eat of the grapes and then come to a point where they realize the grapes aren't even that good. And have a moment of realization where now I want to enlist in the army of God, not grudgingly, not because I feel like I have to, because I feel like there's a moment of surrender here. Where it's like, God, I've, I've got the house and I've got the job and I've got the family, but God, there's still something more inside of me. And the call to war was actually, hey, not to, if you're worried, you're not good. And, and unless you're single, don't serve. You know, unless you, if you've got a job, you know what, have the day off. That's not the, what God's saying here. He's saying, hey, these things that have lured your heart, I need you to come to a point of surrender in them. Because it's not that God's against us having these things. In fact, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 30, there comes a moment where even God's speaking to the people of God, and it's like, hey, if you turn from me, this is what's going to happen. He's speaking of the curses that would come on people. And he says this, you will 
be engaged to a woman, but another man will sleep with her. You would build a house, but somebody else would live in it. You would plant a vineyard, but you'll never enjoy its fruits. What he's saying in this passage is actually this is talking to the curse that would come on you if you go outside of God. Hey, you're going to have all these things, but you're not really going to be satisfied in all these things because it's not really about the. But the, the flip side to that is if you engage with what I have for you, come on, you, you'll find the family. You'll find the house. You'll find the blessing. You'll find the career. You'll find it in me. You'll find it in me. But what the call to war, the call to engage was not talking about whether you have these things or not, but whether these things are surrendered. Because God was calling a group of people saying, hey, it's time we enlarge in the tent. But he's sending a call out to say, hey, would you willingly in all these things, with your house, in your career, with your family. We say, come on, I'm going to serve the Lord. Because when they're not surrendered to God, they have a tendency to distract you from God. And it's crazy. But now, how many friends I've had that have come through church been distracted? Not that they're bad things, but they've taken the wrong place in their heart. Blessings became the focus. Became the focus. And what this call to war was actually, there was some things that God just commanded the people to engage with. This was a voluntary call because they had already taken some position. What this call was all about was the expansion of what they had. But everyone he's speaking to had already built their house and planted their vineyards. They already had their spot in the promise. They already had their lot. This call was to engage so others might have. And this call to war was, hey, are you prepared with what you have to dedicate it to the Lord so that others might have what you have, experience what you experience? So others, it's all about others. But you can tell, just as we finish this morning, you can tell when your world starts shrinking in and the wrong thing has too much space in your heart. When your world becomes more about you. Yeah, I got faith, but my faith is dedicated towards the building of my things. I got faith, but the faith is the dedicated to the, my vineyard or the establishment of my house or my family. But there comes a point where you actually understand that I have room in my heart for others. Why? Because your prayer life isn't consumed by your things. But actually, God, I take what I have and I actually create space for others right now. This is all about others. It's all about others. See, I'd hate for us to go through a week like Shout Conference and feel this greater sense of freedom, discover this clearer call of God on our life, and then to walk out of Shout and let worry or the things of this world snuff out that desire in our heart. But actually come to a point time and time again where it goes, God, I, I surrender this to you. I surrender and all I have back to you. 